Welcome to Turning Point. Have you ever noticed that procrastinating doesn't make the task any easier? Putting it off just makes it harder when you finally do get around to it. Today, Dr. David Jeremiah explains how this truth is reflected in the story of Joshua and how it relates to your own walk with the Lord. With a message from his series, A Nation in Crisis, here's David to introduce Mobilizing the People. Well, friends, thank you for joining us today. We're at the end of a month, and quite often at the end of a month, we we share some individual messages that we don't get a chance to share because most of the time we're in the middle of a series. This time, uh, the messages could almost be a part of the series because they grab hold of some information we have talked about already from the book of Joshua. And um, today we're going to talk about mobilizing the people. Sometimes when I think of being a leader and having a lot of people that I'm supposed to lead, I try to put myself in the shoes of the Old Testament leaders and uh, leading a bunch of uh, recalcitrant uh, Israelites to a place where they don't even know they want to go and how you do that. Um, The book of Joshua is an incredible book in telling us about Joshua's leadership. And today we're going to talk about mobilizing the people. If you want to follow along in the scripture, it's in the first chapter of Joshua and verses 10 through 18. Before we get into this lesson, however, uh, here's a very... um, compatible resource that we have for this month. It's the book by Rob Morgan called The Jordan River Rules, reminding us that the same God who who led you out will lead you on. Um, in 2001, Rob wrote a book called The Red Sea Rules, which showed up on bookshelves telling the story of the Israelites at the Red Sea and how the Lord parted the waters for them. But did you know that God parted the waters for his people a second time? Forty years after the Red Sea experience, God divided the waters of the Jordan River and led his people into the Promised Land. And the principles surrounding the second crossing are even more exciting than the ones of the first crossing. And these principles are in our book for the month of February, The Jordan River Rules by Rob Morgan. You can get a copy of this beautiful gift book, this hardback gift book, for a gift of any size to Turning Point, but you don't want to wait too much longer. We're down to the last few days of the month, and then this resource will go away. Ask for your copy when you send your gift today. If you have ever seen a flock of geese fly south, you know that they fly in a V formation. Several years ago, some scientific study went into the reasoning behind that practice, and it was learned that by flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each of the geese flew by themselves. Whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to go it alone, and it quickly gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird that is immediately in front of it. The bird in front often provides that lift through the air that makes it possible for the bird behind to fly easier. When the lead goose gets tired, he rotates back in the wing, and another goose flies point. The geese in the back honk to encourage those up front to keep going. When a goose gets sick or is wounded by a shot or falls, two geese will fall out of formation and follow him down to help him and protect him. 
and they will stay with him until he is either able to fly again or until he is dead. And then they will launch out on their own or find another formation to catch up with their original group. The geese provide a wonderful illustration of what happens when people follow the leadership and the plan that is set before them. To put it crassly, Joshua is the lead goose, and the geese are about to follow him into the promised land. The connective in verse 10 is the little word then. It is a reminder to us that immediately after Joshua had gotten his orders from the Lord, he responded to comply with what God had asked him to do. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. It's as if Paul were writing to the Galatians and he said, I conferred not with flesh and blood. That describes what Joshua did. He didn't take time out to discuss what he should do. He had clear orders from the Lord, and as soon as he had those orders, immediately he implemented them as God had commanded. Someone has rightly observed that delay causes reluctance, and reluctance often breeds disobedience. When God gives us an order or when we recognize an instruction from his word, If we do not immediately respond in obedience, we run the risk of going through that cycle, first to reluctance and then to disobedience. Someone else has written that it is nothing but a low form of hypocrisy to tell ourselves that we are willing to obey God while we delay in doing it. When we discover our duty, we have only one option, and that is to discharge our duty. There is no time for us to wait. David wrote in Psalm 119 and verse 60 these words. David said, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Very instructive words. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Now it is interesting to observe that Israel had already felt the terrible sting of delayed obedience. You know the story of why they are where they are right now. They had been in Egypt for some 400 years as captives there. Moses had been called upon to lead them out of their bondage, bring them into the promised land. And they traveled out of Egypt to Kadesh Barnea. And there in Kadesh Barnea, God promised them again that he would give them this wonderful land that flowed with milk and honey called the promised land, the land of Canaan. In response to God's instructions, the Israelites sent spies into the land. And when the spies came back, instead of seeing in the eyes of the spirit what was in the land, they saw in the eyes of the flesh what was in the land. And the majority report came back that said, this land which God has promised to us, we can't have it because it's filled with giants and there's no way we can go up against the nations that are fortified within this land so we can't go. And the Bible says that because of the disobedience of these people to obey God, to follow God's instructions, that God would not allow them to go into the land. And he waited until all of that generation died off before anybody could go into the promised land. And it took them 42 years to get from Egypt to Canaan. Now, let me tell you something. That journey would normally take 11 days, but it took 42 years. When we delay... In obedience, we simply hold back what God wants to do for us 
until we are willing to pay the price of obedience. And so what happened was when the Israelites didn't obey readily, they had to wait for a whole generation to feel the blessing of God in their lives. The problem with many of us, if we're honest, is that we often stand reasoning when we should be running. Sometimes we are debating when God just wants us to do. How different we are in our prayers than we are in obedience. We pray, Lord, hear me speedily. Answer my prayer today. But when God gives us a clear instruction, we feel like we can delay as long as we want. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote, We are too often in haste to sin, all that we might be in a greater hurry to obey. I think that we all recognize intuitively that when God tells us to do something and we don't do it immediately, it gets harder and harder for us to do it as we wait. Procrastination causes obedience to be more difficult and painful. I remember something in my past life that illustrates that for me very well. When I was growing up as a teenager, my father, during the summers, was taking graduate school courses at the Winona Lake School of Theology in Winona Lake, Indiana. And so our whole family would go to that part of Indiana for the summer months, and I got a job working there each summer for the Winona Lake Christian Assembly, which ran the conference grounds. And and there were probably 100, maybe 150 young people who worked in that area all summer, and we just had the time of our lives. We had a great time. One of the things that was on the agenda for all of us to do in the summertime was to go a few miles away to the town of Warsaw, and there was a place in the center of the town called Center Lake. And the drawing attraction of Center Lake was that on the end of their dock, they had the highest tower that I had ever seen in a public bathing area where you could climb to the top and jump off or dive off into the lake. I don't know how high it was, but it was the highest thing I had ever seen in a setting like that. And of course, it was big time stuff for everybody to finally get their spurs and go off the tower. And there was all kind of peer pressure to do it. And I wasn't anxious to do it. I didn't want to do it. I really didn't have any interest in doing it. But when my friends began to remark on the color of my back, I had to do something about it. All kinds of pressure was put on me. And I can tell you exactly how many steps it was to the top of the tower and how many steps it was back down. Because the first time, that's what I did. I went to the top and I looked and I thought, I must be out of my mind. And I climbed back down which further created stress for me among my friends. Finally, some of my buddies got me aside and they said, Jeremiah, you're looking at this thing all wrong. What you need to do is you need to forget about how high it is and how many steps it is. You know, you're not gonna be able to make it here this summer if you don't go off the dumb thing, so you better just get it in your mind to do it. Climb up to the top of the tower, don't even think about it, walk right over and jump, because if you think about it, you'll never go off. And you know, they were right, I did that. I climbed up there one day in the absolute most idiotic day of my life and went to the top and without ever thinking about it realizing my whole credibility with my friends was at stake I walked to the edge and jumped I survived as you can see I made it I never did dive off that tower I didn't care what they said about my back I wasn't gonna do that but I jumped and I learned that day that if you delay the hard things it gets harder it doesn't get easier sometimes God speaks to us and he gives us very clear instruction it jumps out of the word to us And instead of obeying and doing what God tells us to do and then getting the blessing that is waiting for us, we talk about it, we discuss it, we dialogue, we put it on a time plan, and we miss out on what God wants for us. Now, I want you to note that Joshua is going to give instruction to these people 
based upon the authority that is vested in him from God already. I have a line drawn in my Bible between verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11, and it goes like this. It's drawn between the words command. Verse 9, God is speaking, have not I commanded thee? Verse 10, then Joshua commanded the officers. Verse 11, the officers are told to pass through the host and command the people. What you have here is God commanding Joshua, Joshua commanding the officers, and the officers commanding the people. As far as I know, it's the first instance in the Old Testament of what we call a chain of command. Somebody being given authority who in turn passes that down through the ranks until it reaches the people. The authority was from God. And because Joshua was willing to act in authority, God blessed his leadership and he was the conqueror of all conquerors in the settling of that land. And I think it's important to recognize that today because authoritative leadership in any sphere has come on hard times. Have you noticed that? Everybody wants consensus these days. Nobody wants direction. And yet as you read the Bible, you discover that God's plan has always been through a man. God has always used leadership to accomplish the objective of his word. Paul writing to Titus said, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, Titus 2.15. And when Jesus was upon this earth, those who listened to him and observed him, according to Matthew 7.29, said that he taught as one having authority. Now, I don't care what modern people are saying, there is nothing wrong with biblical constituted authority. And there is no way in the world that the land of Palestine would have been settled if it had been assigned to a committee. I can promise you that. God allowed Joshua to be their leader, and Joshua passed his authority down through the leaders in the land, and they delegated their authority to the people. Someone wrote these words, there are far too many preachers today who act as though they are begging their hearers to do Christ and his cause a favor, who are so apologetic and fawning and effeminate that they are forfeiting the respect of the real men who come to hear them speak. You know something, there's a lot of truth in that, and it's an embarrassment to any who may be in the ministry. We don't have any authority or power in ourselves at all. But if we are true to what God's word says, we have the power and authority of God and we should speak as if we were the oracle of the Lord, not take five different views and decide which one you want or maybe this is true or maybe it isn't. If we don't understand what God has said and cannot declare his word with a sense of authority, how in the world are the people who are out there in the world living every day under the pressure of a secular mentality ever going to have a sense of direction or authority in their lives? There's a lot of difference between speaking with authority, which is yours by virtue of the Lord, and being a dictator or having an authoritative spirit. We don't need dictatorship and we don't need an authoritative spirit but we do need men and women who speak with authority when God has declared his word and that's the strength of Joshua's orders God commanded Joshua Joshua commanded the leaders and the leaders commanded the people the substance of Joshua's orders are also in verse 11 Joshua was given some instruction to pass on to the leaders that were then to pass this instruction on to the people they were told to go through the host or fan out through the group of people. 
and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals. The first part of their preparation was physical preparation. They were to prepare victuals. Now, you probably wonder what victuals are. If you've ever watched an old Western movie and heard them talk about getting their victuals together, well, victuals are food and victuals are food. It's the grub. It's getting your food together. Joshua was telling the people to go throughout the camp and tell the people, you've got to gather up some food. There's a three-day journey coming, and you don't want to go on this journey without anything to care for your family. Now, I mentioned to you that this is a brand new thing because for all these years that they were in the wilderness, for 40 years in the wilderness, they never had to worry about food. God delivered it to their door every single day. It was a miraculous manna that God had provided. They never had to go and hunt for food. They never had to raise a garden. They were in the desert. There was no way they could have done it. So God just provided it for them every day. But when you get to the fifth chapter of Joshua, the heavenly delivery system is over. And the Bible says that the people are in the land of Canaan and they're eating the old corn of the land. They're gathering up the dregs that are left from the people who live there. And that's how they sustain themselves. But they've got a three-day journey over into the land and Joshua is telling all the people, now you need to get your food together. There's a temptation whenever you preach in the Old Testament to find a lesson in every verse that applies to some New Testament principle. And I promise not to do that as we move through Joshua. But I do want to remind you that if we as Christian people have been called to possess our promised land, our Canaan, and if it is true that that will not be without conflict and warfare, spiritually speaking, then it is also true we must not ever go into the battle without having prepared our food, without having prepared something to nourish up our souls with the good words of the Lord. I can prepare it when I come to the pulpit on Sunday, but that is not sufficient. There needs to be a daily preparation of the food by each and every one of us so that we will have the strength to be sustained in the warfare. If we don't do that, we will suffer from malnutrition and we will soon be victims instead of victors. So Joshua prepared the people through his leadership, first of all, physically. And then there was a spiritual preparation. Notice he said, in three days you shall pass over this Jordan. Now I know it's hard for us to get a picture of what that meant to these people wandering around the wilderness for all these years. God tells them they're going over into the land of Canaan. But the river Jordan, which was not a small problem, stood between where they were and where they were going. And Joshua now passes the word out, we're going to get over there in three days. Now, you might have thought he would have gone to them and said, start gathering up the wood, we've got to build us a bridge. <laughs> or, get all the carpenters together, we've got to make some pontoon boats. But there is not one word from Joshua as to the method of getting over there. There is only the promise that they will get over there. It will take three days and they'll be on the other side. And I'm sure the Israelites looked and they said, oh, wait a minute, how's this gonna happen? We have no means of getting across the river. But Joshua's word was in the form of a promise to encourage them spiritually and mentally that not only would they get across the river, he would do it in three days and the promise of God would be realized in their hearts. So these were words of substance to encourage their spiritual lives. Now I want us to notice not only the substance of their orders, but notice the secret of their orders. What was behind all of this? Here is the core of the book of Joshua wrapped up in a concept, and it goes like this. As believers, we have to possess our possessions. 
Here's the picture. God had promised to Moses, God had promised to Joshua, that the land of Canaan belonged to them. In fact, if you go back to the sixth verse of the first chapter, you'll notice that at the very end of the verse it says, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. God had already promised the land of Canaan to Israel. God had already given it to them. It was theirs. And yet he's telling them to go in and possess it. I mean, how can you possess what you already possess? Maybe I can illustrate it best by telling you a story that I heard about a man who owned a number of pieces of real estate and decided for one reason or another that he wanted to sell one of those pieces of real estate. So he went to a broker and he asked him to write it up and get it circulated so that he could put it on the market. Well, the broker was very good at his trade and he wrote up this estate and described it in graphic details and sent out the copies to the other real estate firms and to some prospective buyers that he knew and happened to send a copy to the owner. And the owner got it in the mail and he began to read about this estate that had luxurious shaded areas and a beautiful pool and had recently been renovated and painted and redecorated and it had all of the amenities that you would want to have in a wonderful estate. And as he got to read the thing, he realized that that was a better place than where he was living. So he moved in and sold his old place. Now, he possessed it, then he went and possessed it. It's one thing to own something, it's another thing to live in it. It's one thing to have title deed to it, it's another thing to possess it by your presence in the midst of it. Now the people of Israel possessed the land of Canaan, God had given it to them. But now he's telling Joshua, you have to go in and take possession of your possessions. Men and women, that is one of the most interesting spiritual truths that we could apply to our own lives. As Christian people, we have been given so much by God. We have so many blessings from Him. And sometimes I think we misunderstand that those blessings are our title deed, but God wants us to move into those blessings and start to possess them by virtue of living within them. I remember when I was preaching through a series of messages on the fruit of the Spirit, I was overwhelmed that the Bible taught that when we are spirit-filled Christians, those things are all ours. When Christ, by the Spirit, indwells and controls us, we have love, joy, peace. But you know what? Fifty-five times in the New Testament, the believer is commanded to love. Now you say, wait a minute. If I already have love by virtue of the Holy Spirit, why am I commanded to love? Because it's important to possess your possessions. It's important to live in the truth of that which God has given to you. And if we don't do that, we are simply landholders without having any joy that goes along with what God has given us. And you know, so many Christians are like that. They know that they're recipients of the love of God and His joy and His power and His strength, and, but they don't ever experience it because you have to walk in the truth, not just receive it. You have to walk in it. When you take the steps of faith into the truth that God has given you, it becomes alive becomes a part of who you are. It gets into your DNA. And uh, that's what this passage is all about. Once again, let me remind you that Rob Morgan's book, The Jordan River Rules, 10 chapters with 10 God-given strategies for moving forward, is our resource uh, for the month of February. This book will help you develop a strategy for moving forward in life and be encouraged as you face the future. 
wonderful addition to your daily time in the Scripture, hardcover book, 115 pages. You can have a copy for a gift of any size to the Ministry of Turning Point. When you send your gift, all you have to do is say, send me the Jordan River Rules or send me this month's resource, and it will be on its way to you before you know it. They're in the warehouse. I saw them. I have one in my hand right now, and we'd love for you to take possession of your book, and then the truth that's in this book is life-changing. Tomorrow, we'll finish up what we started today as we learn how to mobilize the people, and we get these principles from the book of Joshua right from the text of Joshua chapter 1. I hope you'll join us then, and don't forget, you can get all the material from our recent series, Courage to Conquer. You can get that from Turning Point by going to our website, davidjeremiah.org. So happy to have you with us. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series in Joshua, A Nation in Crisis, visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Robert J. Morgan's book, The Jordan River Rules, 10 God-Given Strategies for Moving Forward. Learn how God uses crisis to prepare you for stronger days ahead. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue our series, A Nation in Crisis, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. While serving as United States Minister to France, Benjamin Franklin attended a dinner party in Paris where a French scholar asked him a penetrating question. What kind of man deserves the most pity? Franklin's answer was worthy of contemplation. 
The man most deserving of pity, Franklin said, is a lonesome man who does not know how to read. If that is true, then no Christian should ever be pitied. First, God has given us the church in which we can be surrounded by like-minded friends. And He has also given us the Bible, a book that repays generously every time we open it to read. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's friends and God's book on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.